J.D. John, F.J. at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show. First published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on June 6th of 2014 under the headline, Rumors of Sunken Submarines. The government denies it, but... Here we go. Somewhere on the floor of the Pacific Ocean, rusting away among the rocks by the Oregon coast, lie the remains of at least five sunken submarines. That is, if you believe the stories. And who believes the stories? Certainly not the U.S. government, which places the actual number of Japanese submarine wrecks in Oregon waters at a much more boring number. Zero. According to official records of both the U.S. and Imperial Japan, not a single Imperial Japanese submarine was lost on or near the west coast of the U.S. But the legends and stories persist. Most of these stories are plausible, but only just barely so. One of the Army Air Force pilots who had participated in the Doolittle raid on Tokyo claimed that he had bombed and sunk a Japanese submarine off the mouth of the Columbia River in his B-25 early in the war. No sign of the wreck was ever found, and according to historian Bert Weber, no army documentation has ever been found either. Certain fishermen and divers reported in the early 1970s that they had found a sunken submarine off Cape Kiwanda, and when a reporter from radio station KPNW in Eugene called the Coast Guard in Garibaldi, one of the Coasties there told him it was, quote, more or less confirmed. Well, he did say more or less, and it turned out to be less. No one had found the Kiwanda sub, and nobody who'd seen it personally could be found, although Pacific City and Garibaldi were awash with old salts who knew somebody who knew somebody who had. And historian Don Marshall writes dismissively of the most unlikely story of the bunch, a rumor in Newport that a sunken Nazi U-boat lies in the estuary mud at the bottom of Yaquina Bay. But the best, most plausible, and by far the most dramatic story of a submarine sinking in Oregon coastal waters comes with a story worthy of the pen of one of the best and most prolific pulp fiction writers of the 1930s, L. Ron Hubbard. In early 1943, L. Ron Hubbard, a junior-grade lieutenant in the U.S. Navy Reserve, was the skipper of a brand-new 173-foot submarine chaser, the USS PC-815, which had slid down the skids of a shipyard in Portland just six months before. Hubbard himself was fairly green. He'd commanded another sub-chaser the previous year out in Massachusetts, but his time logged in the captain's chair was still short. It wouldn't get much longer. And what was about to happen was a big part of the reason for that. Good information about L. Ron Hubbard is hard to come by because of how much of a polarizing figure he became later in his life after he founded the Church of Scientology. It's easy to find accounts of his action that day that drip with contempt and scorn and disbelief, and it's also pretty easy to find versions that overflow with adulation. But there are a few things that everybody seems to agree on. I'll try and concentrate on those. Hubbard had taken command of the PC-815 at the Portland shipyard just a month before, 
and he and his crew had sailed the ship out over the bar and north to Bremerton, where the vessel was fitted with its weapons, depth charges, and cannon. Then the little sub-chaser stood out through the Strait of Juan de Fuca, headed for San Diego. Along the way, as Hubbard's ship passed about ten miles off the end of Cape Lookout, his sonar operators picked up the signature of something big under the sea, and then another. Listening on the hydrophones, they became convinced that they were hearing the throb of two submarines' drive screws. The PC-815 charged into battle, depth charge cans rolling off the chutes and lighting up the depths with their massive explosions. The little sub-chaser motored around, chasing sonar blips and rolling depth charges overboard until it had used up its full complement of three dozen or so. Then Hubbard's crew radioed for reinforcements and the crews of four other small Navy and Coast Guard warships stationed at Astoria were rousted out of their homes and out of various waterfront watering holes and sent hustling out to help. Two of the blimps from the Tillamook hangar also arrived shortly afterwards to help direct fire. With the guidance of the blimps, the crew of one of the Navy ships, the 110-foot submarine chaser USS SC-536, homed in on one of the supposed subs and apparently hit something. Quote, The blimp sent us a message saying our charge had made a direct hit and sunk it, recalled crew member Robert Wood in an interview with journalist Lori Tobias. Wood said the crew of the SC-536 saw an oil slick and blood in the water to confirm the kill and locals later reported finding debris washed ashore as if from a sunken sub. But when the jubilant sailors tried to report their kill, the Navy told them it never happened. There were no subs there. As far as the government was concerned, an incompetent and overeager Hubbard and his crew had picked up a sonar signal from something, probably a whale, and had gotten excited and just started bombing the hell out of it. Then they'd called for backup and spent the next 48 hours making life miserable for all the local fish before the exasperated Navy commanders ordered Hubbard to leave it alone and move on. To be sure, the government's claim that Hubbard was incompetent was reinforced several months later when, while stationed at San Diego, he caused an international incident by, uh, opening fire on Mexico. Yeah, Hubbard's ship had, unbeknownst to its greenhorn of a navigator, crossed the border, and when Hubbard decided to conduct some gunnery practice on a nearby island, he unknowingly committed what was technically an act of war, bombarding Mexican territory. The Mexican consulate, although not too upset about it, did complain formally, and Hubbard's days commanding Navy ships were officially over shortly after that. But the Navy's doggedness in calling the Battle of Cape Lookout a 72-hour-long mistake strikes some observers as a bit too strident. You know, in a methinks-the-lady-doth-protest-too-much kind of way. Woods certainly feels that way. Quote, It upset me that the Admiral denied it when he had all the proof he needed, he told Tobias. So what was the deal? Were the two sonar signatures really those of Japanese subs? Was one a sub and the other a whale, perhaps, or could they both have been whales? And what about the possibility that it was an American sub, maybe on some kind of secret mission getting flattened by the overzealous young crews of five surface ships and two airships, then left at the bottom of the sea and disavowed by the government for reasons unknown? You know, kind of like on Mission Impossible? With the information we have right now, it's impossible to say exactly what happened off Cape Lookout 70 years ago, but that may be about to change. For the last few summers, a dive team under the direction of dive manager Kathleen Wallace has taken up the cause of proving that Woods was right. 
Last year, they captured some very promising images of a long, slender object nestled on the seafloor, and it's just about the right size. As of the time of this recording, very early September 2014, Wallace and her dive team have been out investigating this object since mid-August. Before the end of the dive season is over, she hopes this lifelong mystery will be solved. And maybe it will be. For more details about the dive team's quest, go to facebook.com and type Oregon Coast Project into the search field at the top of the page, the one right next to the Facebook logo. Sources for this story have included works by Lori Tobias, James Buchanan, Robert P. Sables, Don Marshall, and of course, L. Ron Hubbard. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff, plus a book including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Facara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.